River Road, you got me running way back home. River Road, you got me running all night long. You got me singing some canal boat song. River Road, River Road, you got me running all night long. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Niner Nuts. I am Dan here along with James. James, say hello. What's up, everybody? And what we're doing this week, guys, we have a very, very special episode. Uh, All 90 minutes of this week's content is going to be within this episode. We're not going to be breaking up this conversation. And we have a very, very special guest here with us. James, introduce our guest to the listeners. Well, first of all, before I say anything, this month is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, And as I've told the listeners previously in the past, if you haven't listened to every episode, that, you know, I suffer from uh, bipolar schizoaffective disorder. And when I was initially diagnosed, um, one of the first resources that my sister-in-law found for my family and I was uh, the organization called NAMI. And so today uh, we have Andrew, uh, from the San Francisco chapter of NAMI. Welcome, Andrew. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Thank you for coming on. And so, uh, you know, Andrew, you know, just wanted to know, like, how, first of all, did your chapter of NAMI get started? Yeah, good question. I'm actually not sure how our chapter started, but I can tell you the quick origin story of the organization as a whole. So NAMI stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It is a national grassroots mental health advocacy organization, and it started in the Bay Area, 1979 in San Mateo. Um, It's an organization founded by a group of parents, caregivers to support family members who supported loved ones. And part of the reason why they wanted to do this was because they felt that there were um, there was a lack of resources and services for loved ones in the mental health space. Okay, and so what are the resources that you provide for individuals suffering from mental health? Yeah, a variety. So we identify as a community-oriented educational services provider and advocacy organization. So to that end, we provide information about mental health via public educational programs. Um, We have opportunities to attend a variety of support groups and the option to enroll in educational classes as well. We also have a ton of resources on our website for people who are based in the Bay Area and for some who aren't as well. And folks can also contact our helpline and connect with somebody who works at the organization or volunteers with the organization. And essentially, they would leave a message and somebody would call them back and provide more information about resources. Um, The final thing I would say is you can get involved as a volunteer. Um, And that could be a great way to continue your recovery journey, learn more about mental health, memorialize your story, give back to the community, et cetera. Okay, that's awesome. That's that's great. So what resources do you provide for families who have loved ones who suffer from mental health issues? Yeah, more or less the same ones that I just mentioned. So there are family support groups and there are also groups for kind of um, family members loved. We kind of call it family members loved ones because you can attend as a friend, you can attend as family of choice. You can attend a support group. You can also join a class. And then we have a bunch of resource guides and pages on our websites as well. And then we also have a few educational programs, i.e. presentations that you can work with us to deliver to your community. Awesome, awesome. And what types of things do you do in the community to raise awareness for mental illness? 
Good question. So this question touches mostly on what I do, and I'm the director of education programming at NAMI San Francisco. So I oversee all of our educational presentations and public events, which are really designed to provide community education and raise awareness about mental health. So we have educational programs designed for a wide range of audiences. This includes high school students in the public schools, some in private schools in San Francisco. We have a program for parents and caregivers. We have a program for general community organizations. This could be a community-based organization like NAMI. It could be a university where we present to college students, others in between. We also have a channel for workplaces, and then we have a channel for the general public. That's our public programming channel. So pretty robust programming suite designed to um, bring mental health education to as many people as possible. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because, you know, there there needs to be a lot of awareness uh, for mental health. I think, you know, people sort of, um, you know, people don't understand it, you know, and if you don't have a loved one uh, that has a mental illness or you don't have a mental illness or anything like that, it's kind of hard for people to understand like what people what people go through, I think. So much of the conversation revolves around education, both on a individual level, on a kind of smaller scale community level, maybe even like a, a family level is what I'm thinking about there, and then on a community level. So in schools, in for, for, for workplaces, for uh, places of worship, religious centers, et cetera. And so much of how we approach mental health is from that grassroots, community-oriented, re recovery-oriented perspective in the name of identifying what is mental health, what are mental health conditions, how might you identify if you or somebody you care about or somebody in your community is struggling. And then once you, in theory, have identified that piece, how can you support yourself or those in your world? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If, if I can chime in, I actually just um, wanted to ask, um, in the time span that you've been with the company, I don't know if this is necessarily something that you've seen or have enough like reference from your day-to-day -day work to answer, but for the time span that you've been with NAMI, has it seemed like there's been any kind of like, um, has it seemed like it's been um, able to be more talked about openly with mental health just in general, not any one specific anxiety, depression, PTSD, anything like that, but has there has there seemed to be a lot of progress in just being open about mental health? It's people just feeling comfortable to say, hey, I don't feel good. I think I need help. Like, has there been a relief for that kind of stigma or was there even that big of a stigma in the first place when you started with the company? The short answer is there's still lots of stigma. There, the, cover, the societal attitudes and understandings of mental health are improving to the extent that there is less stigma, but stigma is still a huge barrier to care. It is still a huge reason why people have a hard time talking about mental health, sharing that they're struggling, um, having a hard time receiving information from even somebody they care about uh, in a empathetic, respectful, responsive way. One of the big silver linings of the pandemic is that it highlighted that mental health is a human condition. It is a human issue. In fact, people who experience mental illness, uh, which is about 
20% of the American adult population, 16, 17% for people who are minors, 6 to 17 years old. Those are huge numbers, right? Those are tens and tens of millions of people. And so inevitably, when we all experience uh, the same thing in theory, such as the pandemic, it highlights this kind of universal human condition, i.e. mental health. What, so that creates the silver lining where people are like, oh, what are treatment options? How can we find support? Um, how can we support ourselves? What are community options, et cetera? So I think that is a huge, huge positive. That said, it is still tough to talk about. It is still tough to talk about, um, and it's even harder to talk about in certain cultural and ethnic settings where stigma is incredibly high, where there are not words for mental health um, in a native tongue, for example, native language. And so, so much of what we try to do at NAMI is provide community education that is um, informed by cultural context, that is culturally responsive, so that we can reach communities where there is higher level of stigma um, and hopefully provide the education that we might not have three or four years ago. Good. I, I love hearing that. I I guess it's not so much for, I guess, my personal journey. James, you've been very open with yours. I mean, for myself, I still don't talk so much about it on open forum like this in super detail, but um, for me to just realize I had generalized anxiety to the extent that I did have, it took a long time for me to to get to that point. And there were a lot of factors that went into it. And there's things I'm dealing with now that had I not been so um, open to getting help or talking to somebody about it. Um, I don't know how I'd be dealing with uh, these things right now. So I'm glad that you guys, part of what you want to do with NAMI is just uh, open the door to education and make it uh, and present it in a way that's digestible and get rid of uh, the stigma or the fear of admitting, hey, I need help sometimes, because that is a big factor, at least in my perspective, a fear of admitting that you need help too is a big thing that keeps people from seeking the help that they need and or desire. Absolutely. There are many different layers and components of stigma. There is internalized stigma about experiencing depression or experiencing schizophrenia, bipolar, others, right? There's family stigma, community stigma, societal stigma, et cetera. And of course, all of these kind of bleed into one another and feed into one another. Um, to your point, Dan, we view our role as a community provider, as the services we provide as a way to start the conversation. And we don't, identif don't identify, because this is probably not the case, as the end of a conversation, right? But when we go into a classroom and talk to ninth graders and say, hey, here's what mental health is, here's what depression is, here are some warning signs, et cetera, our goal is to start the conversation and in theory provide information about early intervention strategies. What does proactive like health maintenance, health management look like? We're familiar with what it is on a physical health level. Let's talk about it on a mental health level so that in theory, again, if you're able to identify you have a mental health challenge or somebody else does, you can take some proactive, positive self-care steps to help yourself feel better, to, to manage, to cope. And do the youth seem responsive either to you or to people that like you assigned to go out to those schools? Like um, it seems pretty responsive when you do go out and do those uh, presentations. Yeah, good question. 
mostly responsive. Mental health is very top of mind for younger people, especially in light of the pandemic. I think one of the populations that was that that who really struggled had had some um, elevated socio-emotional challenges associated with distance learning, associated with lack of sociability, especially a very formative, you know, a period in their life, uh, middle school, high school. Mental health is top of mind and they are receptive. And one of the things that we try to do in terms of how we design and structure educational programs is to make few to no assumptions about pre-existing knowledge. And that means that to some extent we have to modify and update our content based on the schools that we are um, where we're representing. But in general, at the end of our program, we want everybody to be on the same page. And that might mean that some students I've already heard a little bit of the information and it might be totally new to others. This is the, is this the year that freshmen when the pandemic started are graduating now? Has it been that long? Cause I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking like. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Cause it, the pandemic started end of 2020. So, or no beginning of 2020. And so, yeah. so 2024 should be their graduation year. Right. So I was just thinking, like, how, from your perspective, that would be fascinating to observe, like, um, observing um, now that the, enough time's gone by, like you said, it's a very, very formative age, uh, 14, 15. Uh, you're already, it's already a big change from middle school to high school. Now you're going, now you've had to do high school in such a drastically different way than any generation before you has, like, how that would weigh on your mental health, especially at such a young age. Like, that, that's just fascinating that you got to, to witness that, so to say, from the front row. Excuse me. <laughs> um, yes, I will say that I've only been with the organization for about two years, two and a half years, including my volunteer experience. So was not with the organization like at the kind of deep heart of the pandemic or when the pandemic started, but I've had enough conversations with my colleagues who have those in administrative positions in the school district, those kind of more boots on the ground in the classroom, in the district, have a pretty good sense of some of the challenges that are affecting young people. Some of those challenges, um, a, a lot of them kind of boiled down to level, kind of varying experiences of anxiety, stress, um, kind of issues around um, healthy social relationships, healthy sexual relationships, feelings of, you know, and to be more specific, students not attending school, students attending school and not going to class uh, for one reason or another, students attending class, but feeling distracted, confused, anxious. And then if you can imagine, a student who doesn't go to class, stays at home, and maybe is using technology more than they would because that's the only thing they kind of could really do, one of the only things they could do in the pandemic, right? And then maybe they feel motivated to go to class, but they're a week behind. So that breeds another level of anxiety. And um, the snowball effect is pretty easy to pretty easy to envision. So there's a bunch of overlapping kind of variables and criteria. Um, I always tip my hat to the educators in the classroom because it's, I think, a really difficult position to be in right now to support all the students. I think they do a very admirable job. I really come in almost as a consultant to provide mental health education. But I think it would be a difficult, especially, you know, through on social media, I think it would be a very difficult time to kind of be coming of age, finding yourself as a young person in light of the pandemic with technology, a lot less sociability. Um, 
you know, administrators have told me that they think students in general, you know, they have lost years in terms of their social emotional development. So just a hard time. Right. I just, yeah, it's, I, I couldn't imagine myself going through it. I mean, there's a bit of an age gap between me and James. I mean, James, I'm sure same for you, just yeah. how much more mental anxiety there would be if we, if you went through it. At <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, typically like one of the things that I noticed, cause you know, I worked in residential treatment, um, you know, as a direct care professional and during the pandemic and we couldn't, we couldn't take our boys out to outings like they typically do. And so, um, you know, the organization had said there was a noticeably higher rate in restraints during that time uh, where, you know, we were having to restrain individuals uh, more frequently because the pandemic basically kept them on the grounds consistently and there was no real incentive for the individuals, the patients to leave the facility. So, you know, it was pretty much like, well, we're just going to be here. So who gives whatever, you know? And so, uh, so during the pandemic, yeah, I, it was difficult, you know, to watch these kids struggle in residential treatment being in, you know, unfortunately residential treatment is almost like, um, what I want to say, a penitentiary almost. That's what it felt like, you know, to be there working there, like almost like I was a guard. And so it definitely affected um, the kids that I worked with um, on a very big level. And so, yeah, it was, that's how, like when I saw the pandemic and I was going through it, like I had, that's what I was dealing with. And so, um, so yeah, it was quite the struggle um, for those individuals Like they, because typically they would have been given an incentive to go to like a theme park or, you know, uh, go out uh, to a basketball game. You know, they, that was usually the incentives that they would have if the pandemic wasn't going on. But because the pandemic was going on, really, there was no incentive to, you know, follow directions and things like that so that they could go on these outings. And it, it really did make things worse in in that situation so well andrew can you tell us um what some of the most common illnesses that people generally tend to have um, that attend nami groups sure so depression and anxiety is really common Schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorders, and bipolar disorder, also somewhat common. And then PTSD, ADHD, borderline personality, less common but represented. Some folks also experience um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Those are those are the ones that come to mind. And what are what are some of the struggles that people go through with mental illness? Many different things, and it is it can be difficult to compartmentalize the challenges, but I'll but I'll do my best. In general, feelings of social isolation, less less sense of social belonging and acceptance, feelings of personal shame, worthlessness, lack of um, lack of self confidence, 
kind of a negative air or color associated with the events and relationships in their lives and also how they feel about their direction forward. And again, I think the, the social piece is big. People can certainly feel a lack of belonging, lack of social societal acceptance, as I said, which I think does really boil down to stigma and the negative associations people have with mental illness, um, which is something we've already, already chatted about. And I think getting more specific about how mental illness can affect these kind of some of the big domains of life and how we're moving through life, right? People can have challenges with school attendance, academic performance, work performance, work attendance. Some people might develop a substance use issue as an attempt to cope, feel better, manage their mental health symptoms. There's also challenges associated with housing, independence, healthy social relationships with coworkers, with family members, with providers. Um, this could be related to experiences of homelessness, possible touch with even the criminal justice system. And of course, these are more intense, serious outcomes, but possible. And then in very serious cases, experiences of uh, self-harming and or suicidality. But it's important to remember that there is there are many different types of mental illness and the experiences and emotions associated with different types of mental illness can be very different. So someone who experiences depression, for example, relative to someone who experiences um, schizophrenia or someone who experiences borderline personality disorder. There are some, um, you know, to some extent, common characteristics, common warning signs, but Again, somebody who experiences major depressive disorder and somebody who experiences borderline personality disorder, their symptoms, their feelings may personally and publicly manifest in totally different ways and the challenges they experience um, might be different as well. Yeah, I think like with me, like talking about like the different illnesses and uh, what they go through, like particularly with mine, bipolar schizoaffective, um, you know, delusions are uh, a big factor um, in knowing when I'm mentally unstable. Um, and it can be hard for people to identify, you know, that I'm going through these delusions, especially with people who've never uh, seen anything like it or have ever seen it manifested, um, both in my previous marriage and my current marriage, you know, um, nobody understood what was going on um you know and well my family did but my significant other didn't and so they just sort of went along with it uh the difference was in my first marriage it pretty much burnt the relationship and that was sort of like the end of it and at least with this current one um i do feel the support and things like that you know with that but the fact that yeah, you could end up with burned relationships due to, you know, a manic episode, you know, going about. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely feel some of that. So. And just to piggyback on that for a second, I think one of the things that people struggle, can struggle with on a personal level, which can impact their either, either willingness to seek help or the help that other people can offer is the sense of and experiences of invisibility. So I identify as a peer along with the rest of our team. So I experienced major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And I was formally diagnosed when I was 13 and I recently turned 30. So I've been managing my mental health conditions for the majority of my life at this point. And especially when I was younger and I did not feel secure or confident 
or have the communication techniques or communication know-how to express how I was feeling, especially with my peers, is that I could be feeling very depressed, right? Be in the middle of a major depressive episode and do a, and be able to mask my warning signs to the point that people might not know how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wouldn't be able to mask them and people might not know that I'm experiencing a depressive episode, but my communication might be faulty, et cetera. But in general, I totally relate to this idea of um, invisibility, shame, guilt. And I think a lot of that comes back to this stigma as well. And so kind of part of what we were talking about earlier, starting the conversation is also we're big believers in just small steps. Like we're big believers in like chipping away at stigma, like one, you know, here with a hammer at a time and not kind of uh, you know, changing the world per se, but if that can move somebody feeling those feelings of invisibility to maybe being a little bit, feeling a little bit more open to sharing with somebody who they care about, like that could be the difference between locating treatment or not. Right, right. And, you know, what are some of the struggles that like loved ones and family members of somebody suffering from mental illness go through? Yeah, good question. I think it's important to mention that off the bat that being a family member, loved one, caring for a loved one can be just as emotionally draining, debilitating as experiencing a mental health condition. And when we talk about those prevalence numbers earlier, roughly one in five American adults, if you kind of extrapolate that out and think about the community who is around that person, right, is more than just one in five people who is impacted by a mental health condition. But some of the specific challenges that loved ones, family members may face, a few of the following, um, feeling helpless, feeling burned out, feeling angry, frustrated with the person they are caring for, for a variety of reasons, uh, feeling angry or frustrated about the systems um, where they are attempting to locate support, certainly feeling uncertain, paranoid perhaps, and then possibly also developing their own mental health conditions as a result of caring for a loved one possibly developing PTSD or anxiety disorder or a substance use disorder. So um, multiple layers, again, kind of from the uh, socio-emotional challenges of collaborating with a loved one to some you know, challenges associated with care, healthcare systems, community systems, to their own mental health as well. Okay. I can I can relate to um, kind of both sides of the of the the strain that it can be put on that that can you could feel like you're going through when caring for someone that's ha- having serious mental health that they're taking care of. I've um, my own mental health. I was I wasn't taking care of it very well at the end of um, well my first marriage. I'm it's I'm comfortable enough to say that, but I've I've been able to look back at it now and. I'm not going to go so far as to speak on the other person's behalf, but I know myself, I was not taking care of things that I probably could have been able to address if I was doing back then what I am now for my own mental health. And then, um, my, my fiance now, um, has ADHD, uh, like legit clinical, like there's medication involved. Um, so I've had to, I've learned through her a lot about what that's like firsthand and, just a lot of um, growing pains, let's let's say, like learning and understanding. But I I want to learn all that because I do care very very much about her. 
So it's been, uh, it has been a lot to learn, not the easiest thing to learn, of course, but at the end of the day, it's to benefit our relationship. So that's what's motivated me to learn and be receptive and just educate myself. And I had a, I had a relationship with a friend fall apart because, um, they just, uh, it could tie into that stigma. They didn't think that she was actually like, they said some very unkind things and didn't really take her diagnosis seriously and just kind of very hurtful personal things about her was the way that he interpreted just how she was as a person. But, um, so, I mean, I, I feel like I've kind of seen all the, the ways around and it's, um, it, it can be, a, it can be a lot and it is, um, it's, I think it's good to really make that a part of the conversation, acknowledging that like, yeah, it can be very difficult, but it's not impossible. And these things are real, but they're treatments, so to say, there's ways to work with it and manage it. And then we're all better in the end once we start the conversation, because that's where you got to start it, just acknowledging, hey, I need help. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's kind of two pieces to it. One is facts, right? People experience mental health conditions. They can experience mild conditions. They can experience severe conditions. Severe conditions can be debilitating on both a individual level and on a family and possibly even community level. As an organization, NAMI strongly believes in a both peer and family member and loved one community support infrastructure models. So in theory, providing services programs for, for, for each of those populations, right? If you are a peer, you can attend a support group, you can attend a class. If you're a family member, you can attend a support group, you can attend a class. And maybe through the class you, you attend, you learn communication techniques to speak with your family member in a way that maybe you were not speaking with them before. And maybe that fosters increased connection, collaboration, open dialogue, et cetera, to the point that maybe that family member is interested in joining a support group. So then they tend to support group, right? And there's kind of, uh, and that is the most, you know, kind of ideal situation, but it does happen. And that's where if everybody can, in theory, if everybody, is speaking a similar conversation, is speaking the similar similar language around what mental health is, what treatment options look like, what warning signs, um, there is an increased chance, likelihood, that people can find treatment, can find care. And that's the same way we approach our kind of school, young, young people, uh, family approach as well, is we do presentations for students, we do presentations for parents and caregivers, and we also do presentations for educators. So if a student goes to an educator or a family member goes to an educator or a family member talks with their child, right? They're all um, speaking a similar language, aware of like resources, aware of community supports, so that none of them are kind of like siloed or on an island. Okay. And how successful have your resources been in helping people? Good question. It's it's kind of hard to um, quantify uh, objectively, but I would say a few things. Um, one, I think our programs are generally successful in terms of destigmatizing mental health, humanizing mental health, normalizing mental health, and providing valuable information about local resources so folks can begin or continue the conversation on our path to recovery. It's difficult to quantify that, especially for the programs that 
I run because we don't have very much a direct touch with the people receiving the programs, i.e. the students or the parent caregivers who are attending a presentation. But in general, um, we know that the programs are help do those things. Also in terms of support groups, classes, people, I mean, those are those are people really view those as sacred spaces where they can feel heard, feel validated, learn from others about their lived experience. Peer support services, all about lived experience. Um, learn about what you know, what worked for somebody else, what maybe didn't work for somebody else, etc. All of this can help feelings, you know, reduce feelings of loneliness, isolation, increased sense of belonging, social acceptance of being seen. And they're very recovery oriented, meaning that there is a general belief and attitude of hope and possible possibility, positive possibility for direction. Especially if you think of somebody who might have had a poor experience with medication or have reservations about taking medication as a treatment option because of either misinformation or they had poor clinical experiences, et cetera or that something like counseling or therapy just like wasn't their cup of tea, you can enter a community space with like-minded people who have similar lived experience. That can be incredibly powerful, incredibly meaningful. Um, yeah. And yeah. one of the things they talk about is via that meaningful experience, either, either kind of have a change in attitude or be more um, willing to engage treatment in possibly a new way, possibly via community organizations, whereas before you might have been going through somebody in your healthcare, a healthcare provider um, in, in your system who's in network, and maybe that wasn't a positive experience. So in general, in terms of success, um, there's kind of three spaces that we think about in terms of how people might find support, three very general spaces, right? Self-care, the coping strategies you have, the community supports, and then the kind of more formal supports, treatments, those would be like medication and therapy. So the community support space is really important. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you know, I, I've attended NAMI meetings before, but when I, when I moved to Florida, you know, um, and I was going through, uh, you know, separation, divorce, and I saw a counselor at the VA, he sort of recommended group group therapy. And, you know, uh, the I went to, it wasn't an AMI meeting, but I went to a, a bipolar support group and that was in 2010. And I still have contact with two of my friends that I met at that group to this day, like, and so, you know, that peer support that we got there, you know, we all know that, you know, we understand each other. We know what we're going through. We understand the ups and downs, um, you know, specifically that go with bipolar. And so it's been really important. Um, peer support has re really been important in my life in being successful. And like you said, you know, it definitely helps not feeling alone, you know, in this world, that there are other people out there who are, you know, just like you, who suffer and who have gone through the the highs and the lows and all of that with your specific disorder. And, you know, that can be very helpful 
in successfully keeping you, you know, stable um, and going through life. And, you know, when you're down, they can pick you up. And when they're down, you pick them up and you get through it together. And I think, you know, it does eliminate, um, you know, um, that loneliness feeling that you, you know, that people talk about. Absolutely. And increases feelings of self-advocacy, personal responsibility, decision-making when you have, when you feel like you have this group of people who understands you, is behind you, is supporting you. I mean, that can, that can be, um, have tremendous impact on somebody's life. And it also can lead to a reduction in hospitalization, relapse. Mm -hmm. um, studies have shown that peer support services can lead to a decrease in psychiatric hospitalizations. Right. Perhaps among individuals with mental health conditions and many treatment facilities, as James, you might you might already know. Um, yeah. Maybe historically they did not incorporate peer support services in their program suite, and now they are incorporating peer support services in their program suite because they recognize that they are a valuable part of kind of a more holistic treatment community support program. Right. Right. But you know, in you know, another good thing about peer support is, you know, the resources that you learn about because maybe somebody tapped into a resource in the community that really helped them and they're going that when they were going through something. And so when this person's at the group and they hear them talk and they're like, oh, well, I went to this community resource that can help you with that, you know, and, you know, like I experienced that at the organization that I'm with now, you know, with the programs that I'm at the VA, like, you know, I had, you know, there was this veteran who was there and, you know, I said, well, I'm going through this program at the VA. I think you'd be a great candidate for it, you know, because sometimes that's how people get to know the resources in their areas because somebody else has gone through it. And I think that's another good thing about peer support. Absolutely. Actually, last week we just had, uh, so May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It is also Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So in May, we've been doing a suite of programming, kind of an intersection of both of those. And last week we did a summit which featured API mental health professionals. And one of the things that the panelists were talking about was um, the fact that many people in the API community, and that is a broad generalization, it is a, uh, there are many diasporas in that community, but many folks in those various communities one of their first instincts when talking about health or well-being is to go to community practitioners or to go to community spaces or engage family members or people who possibly they even work with rather than going to let's say a primary care physician as we might in the united states in a you know western country um so again value of community supports it's something that we, you know, as an organization are kind of just increasingly and increasingly aware of, not both just both for so many different populations. Um, one of, we actually offer a Cantonese language support group for family members, which we've been running for, for, for years and years um, and has a really strong following probably for, for just that reason. So there's, again, a bunch of different layers to it. Right. The cultural layer is a, is a huge one. Yeah. Are you thinking um, longer, long term, eventually, like, try to encourage 
um, having all these groups and gatherings like in person, like trying to phase out virtual? Is that a goal that in time, like maybe we don't need to like try to push doing it only in person because of how important these meetings in person can be? Or have you embraced keeping the convenience or whichever reason you'd want to do it virtually instead? Like has that has it basically been accepted that like you want to keep, try to keep both options open or is the goal to try to go back to like strictly in person for these uh, gatherings? If you can say. Not to go back strictly in person for in-person gatherings for convenience of staff and for the convenience of people attending the groups. I think a, another silver lining of the pandemic is the accessibility of online virtual spaces. It's it would be very difficult for us to run the amount of in, uh, virtual programs that we have right now in person, basically impossible without more staff. And it would also be less convenient for people who are attending the programs. That said, we have started doing more programs in person post pandemic. So all of the presentations we do for high school students are in person on campus. That's really important, right? Students are on campus, we should be too. We have run a few classes for uh, Spanish language peer classes in person because we have found and heard that folks from the Latinx community prefer in-person community events. So with that in mind, for the class to have as much um, relevance and positive touch as possible, we'll find a space, we'll run it in person. But in general, you know, the majority of our programs remain virtual and will remain virtual indefinitely. Okay. I I was just curious of that, like thinking about like how school line, I, they're apples and oranges, but like schools, like I remember my dad was a teacher. He had to do, he retired after his one year of virtual, but then going back to in person, but like, so I was thinking like, how are the, how are these groups doing that? Like, for me and my therapist, our one on one, I I enjoyed the initial FaceTime that we made in person because I thought that was important to actually see her in person. But for me personally, I just I like the choice of like I can wake up, I don't have to, yeah, I'll I'll shower and get ready, so to say, but. I don't have to add the time and the worry about like getting there and the, like it was more convenient for me just in my own personal choice. So I like the idea of therapy being more accessible that way from that standpoint. So that that's why I was asking about uh, what your uh, plans were with the groups, like keeping virtual integrated with it. We are developing. We we recently received a new grant through the city to continue developing our programming line for the Black African American community in San Francisco. And it's a grant through the city. And part of what that grant asks us require, would requires us to do is do more in-person programming. Um, so that is something we are focusing on, on the, over the next three, six, 12 plus months, essentially as long as the grant runs and hopefully longer. So again, there is this slow shift back to in-person programming, but the opportunity cost for us right now is that we would, we just wouldn't be able to offer the depth and kind of almost nuance of programs that we're offering if they were in person. For example, over the last, let's say six to 18 months, 
as a result, as a as a, a product of increased funding, increased staff, increased volunteer numbers, and volunteers really drive and deliver our programs for the most part. We have been able to start family support groups for the BIPOC community, for African, for specifically for people who identify as Black African American, uh, for siblings. Um, we only run some of those groups once a month, but those are you know, populations we've wanted to reach for a long time and virtual essentially allows us to do so. That's, no, that's good. Yeah, that's great. Honestly, like I, like you said, silver, like silver lining from the pandemic of all the bad things that happened. I mean, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm glad that we've now embraced like a, I have a new job starting soon that is virtual. And I would joke with people, oh, I, I, pick, I picked the wrong job before the pandemic. Like, <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I, that's again my own personal. I like the idea of working at home, and I don't see. I personally don't understand why businesses wouldn't. You less overhead, all that stuff. But <laughs> yeah, and I, I find it, I find it great that you know with what's come out of this, these virtuals, that you can get to even a specific demographic that you're getting to, like you know, not just african-american family members but siblings you know to actually you know focus on the support group that is just basically brothers and sisters of somebody who suffers uh which is quite unique i i don't think that we even have that in our chapters here you know nami and brevard county but that i mean the fact that virtual can allow you to create such a niche uh with your support groups that's that's really wonderful yeah, that's that's really the idea. And I think, again, because some of the funding we received, we ha we are able to offer more programs than the average NAMI. Also, based on just the demographic breakdown of San Francisco, we feel that it's important to meet the needs of some of the most represented demographic groups in the city, which historically, as a mostly white organization we were not able to do and really was was not as much of a priority um we have been successful in creating community in virtual spaces that said we also recognize that it is not the same as meeting people in person and so one of the right. things we started one of the programs we started last summer summer 2020 uh was it 2021 i think actually end of summer 2021, if I remember correctly, was what's called Saturday Strolls. So once a month, we just organize an in-person walk out by the out by Ocean Beach in San Francisco, where anybody can attend if they're an AMI volunteer member, just want to learn more about the programs, if they're a board member, et cetera. And that's just a good space for people, for people to meet in person, get some fresh air, walk, right? So thinking about some form of balance between how in-person and, and, and virtual programs. Right. And then, you know, I, I don't know if you guys get this a lot, um, but um, does NAMI have professional counselors? We do not. And I'm, and I'm glad you asked that question because it's an important point of clarification. So everybody who identify, everybody who's on staff is either a peer, so somebody who experiences a mental health condition or a family member slash loved one. So they support a peer someone who experiences a mental health condition. And then the volunteers, volunteers outnumber staff about five or six to one with the organization. 
So all of the volunteers identify as a peer or a family member. So we don't have any clinical services. We have no mental health professionals on staff. We don't provide referrals to um, uh, for-profit offices, specific clinicians, practicing clinicians, to specific healthcare plans. We do have lists of community resources and organizations that provide counseling services, but the NAMI model is a peer support service model. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's that's good to know because, you know, at least at least you can provide community resources that have counseling, but it, I definitely feel like, yeah, we sh it's important to know that NAMI is this peer, uh, you know, organization that is out there. So uh, I think sometimes people don't come to NAMI because they're afraid they're going to somehow get diagnosed or, you know, or, you know, they're going to get their brains picked. So, you know, knowing that it's just peer support um, and not actually uh, counselors, I think is definitely, definitely good. Does that get conflated often uh, in your experience? Uh, Mostly, in my experience, people are just not familiar with the organization at all. Less so that they're confused about the services we offer. And in California, there has been a strong push legislatively to support peer support services to the extent that there is a peer support state peer support certification program happening now, all in the name of uh, Peers like myself, right? I could go through this program, become a certified peer support specialist, and then I can provide services that are reimbursed by Medi-Cal, which is great because that used to be a big kind of system healthcare barrier to care. So essentially the state is financing, supporting, providing trainings for this peer support workforce, which is awesome, um, which is of course something we, we adamantly support. I think the, but in general, to kind of like the lay person out there, peer support services are still more niche. They're almost more alternative, although I don't love to use that term. They're becoming more, maybe not, a, they, they've always been accepted, but more visible, more well-known, especially as alternatives to or complements to um, other forms of treatment and support. So you're getting the you're getting the exposure, so to say. You're finally getting your time in the spotlight as like, yeah, alternative. That's not that's the weird word to use for it. But now you're being seen more as a viable option, which is great. I'm I'm very happy to hear that. Absolutely. And as I was kind of mentioning before, there are these different genres of support, right? So somebody might have a great relationship with and experience with a therapist, and that might be like the lane of support that works for them and they don't feel the need to attend a support group or take medication, great. Um, for other folks, that may not be the case or they're just looking for something complimentary, right? They're like, I have a great relationship with my psychiatrist, my medication is working well, but I'm looking for more social support or I'm looking for ways to diversify my self-care strategies because that's something I've had a hard time with and attending a support group can be a good way to learn as we talked about earlier, about what other people are doing. Um, I think in general, 
there, you kind of, if I was to summarize maybe what this shift is, it's, it's a more human shift. Peer support services are human services, human to human. Uh, and inevitably, when they're successful, there is curiosity and active listening. And it's all about empathy. It's all about um, building emotional resilience for yourself, your others, community. And I think there is, in general, an important shift happening toward recognizing that that is an important like phenomenon that should be encouraged. Uh, that is important kind of genre of supports that should be encouraged. And I think it's a wonderful thing that the state is doing so on a legislative level. That is good. That is good. And I, and I think, you know, post pandemic, uh, a lot of a lot of states are starting to uh, sort of get on board with this. Um, I don't know if you've known about the counseling compact or heard what that is, but uh, legislation is being passed um, in a number of states and it has already been enacted in some states where uh, a clinician, say in Florida, uh, their patient decides to move to I like one of the states I believe is Kentucky or Tennessee, uh, previously that clinician wouldn't be allowed to see that client, but towards the end of 2023, starting in 2024, they're going to start uh, issuing licenses where you can do that, where a clinician can cross sort of state lines and see somebody virtually that they had seen in that in Florida if they go to the Kentucky, now they can see that person instead of that person having to find somebody else, find another clinician, they can keep the clinician that they had if they had that good relationship, which is, I think, important too, um, you know, with, you know, basically mental illness being so prevalent. Yeah, it is, it is understandable why certain states have licensing requirements and certification requirements in other states might not have. I think that's that's not necessarily uh, like a like a bad thing, but I think in general, right, the system is becoming more flexible and incorporating some level of like nuance, all in the name of patient support, right, all in the name of like patient well-being, and I think that's a good thing. Definitely, definitely. So. Oh, I agree. Um, have you seen? Um, trying to. Have you seen um, in the information that you will then bestow to educate uh, the people, have you seen a lot of, um, or I guess, I sh I guess I'll ask it this way, say like in a year or so, how many times do you see something that like is a real like game changing, like, oh, wow, this is a, in terms of like studying mental health or in the treatment of mental health, like, does it seem like in recent years, in this big push to embrace and talk about mental health or health, uh, has there been a real big push or is there a way to push uh, to either better diagnose or better medicate or better like, uh, is there any, what kind of growth has there been in researching mental health itself, I suppose, is what I'm trying to ask. That's a great question. I, if that made sense, what I was trying to ask. <laughs> yeah. I will I say mean, I'm less hip to. I think I, I think I can answer that because I'm studying to be a mental health counselor. Um, 
and some of the growth that we've seen in neuroscience has been quite amazing. Um, you know, EMDR therapy is really good as well. That's um, that's helped people uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder overcome their disorders, basically heal it completely. Uh, that's some of the results that they're getting from EMDR therapy where nightmares are gone, you know, all symptoms of PTSD are gone and they can, once they get through EMDR therapy and successfully go through that. Uh, neuroscience, uh, some of the things that, you know, are going on there are very helpful, you know, in people successfully overcoming their illnesses as well. Um, we're finding more and more things about the brain, what areas of the brain cause mental illness, um, and where they're coming from, and how to, like, say, use brain waves and make brain waves stronger so that you can, you know, focus better, you can focus with mania better, or you can focus with your feelings better. Just there, there has been a lot of advancement just, you know, over the last, say, 20 years where, you know, mental health treatment is sort of really accelerating and helping people, at least for the people that seek it, that go out and get it and engage in it, because that's important too, that, the help is there. Some people are forced to go and then don't really want to do the work. And so there are certain stages of change that a person has to be in. And that first stage is the contemplative stage where they recognize there's a problem and they know they need to do something about that. But there are still people in pre-contemplative stages where they don't acknowledge that they have a problem and don't want to work on it, even though pretty much their family members are telling them this is what's going on, or say they get in trouble with the police and the you know they're sentenced to do you know anger management or something like that. So there's still people there's still people who are in that realm. But for the people that are engaging in, you know, resources and therapy and treatment, um, there's there's a lot of successful treatment out there. There's better medications than what there were 20 years ago. Um, you know, new medications are coming out pretty much at least every every year. You hear of a new medication coming out that treats depression, that treats mania, that treats psychotic episodes, all of that. So. I mean, it's really advanced even since I was diagnosed, you know, which was I was diagnosed in 2000. And, you know, at the time, my choices were Depakote or lithium, you know, and that's it. Like, that was my only choice. And so, um, but as I've progressed um, through the last 20 years, more medicine has become available and there are more choices uh, to go on. So where... If something, ha if you're given a medication and it doesn't really work for you and you tell your psychiatrist, hey, this isn't working or I don't like the side effects of this medication, well, there's enough medication out there where they can say, well, let's try this one. And if that one doesn't work, we'll try this one. So uh, the advancements in in treatment has really progressed even like like I said, in the last 20 years. The piece I would add as well, which I was thinking about, James, as you were as you were talking, is two things. One, 
And this kind of comes back to the, you know, macro societal level thinking about how we are legislating around and or supporting or not supporting certain modalities and treatments for mental health care, right? For the better part, for decades and decades, uh, 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 controlled substances, i.e. MDMA, i.e. psilocybin, were basically not, you couldn't use those in any sort of like academic or professional research, right? And now that is changing. As far as I know, I think somebody, if you're curious about this, should look it up and not necessarily quote me, but I think the FDA is moving in the direction of um, basically allowing for those forms of treatment for certain types of mental health care. And there is a great documentary about fungi, so mushrooms uh, and various other types on Netflix that was talking about some of the really wonderful benefits of um, psilocybin-assisted treatment for mental health conditions such as depression. And that they, um, so if anybody's curious about that, I would recommend reading about it more. I don't know too much about it, but in general, right, relative to 15 years ago, 30 years ago, when these forms of more formal mental health care were just not on the table at all. In fact, researchers weren't allowed to use any sort of federal funding to research them. Now they are becoming more, accept, more accepted and possibly receiving federal backing, or at least federal acceptance. So I think that is a huge shift in terms of yeah. how we're thinking about mental health care. For sure. I mean, you know, EMDR therapy has been out for a while, but you know, the VA has just started uh, hiring licensed clinicians who can, who can administer EMDR, basically because the majority of the people who seek mental health services at the VA are suffering from PTSD, you know. And so, you know, it is, it is starting to get federal backing. Um, and, it, you know, it even, you know, if a veteran's 100%, you know, service connected, uh, they can get benefits for their spouse. And if their spouse has PTSD, um, they can get EMDR therapy through the insurance that um, that the VA provides through uh, for spouses. So um, so the government backing is starting is starting to get there and it's starting to make definite more progress, you know, for sure. So, okay. So, um, how can somebody get a mental illness? Um, uh, yeah, good question. So, there are a variety, we call these contributing factors. So, there's a variety of contributing factors, but it is important to be important to know that many mental health conditions often have a biological genetic basis. So, somebody has a genetic predisposition. For example, I have a genetic predisposition to experiencing depression. That said, there, relative to my own story, I'll use this as an example, there, um, somebody has a genetic predisposition, right? But then there's usually either something happens uh, where there, there's some sort of um, factor or two or three that maybe like brings that condition to life, so to speak. And that's probably not a, that's probably kind of a poor way to say it, but right, there's overlapping conditions. So for my story, for example, genetic predisposition, 
my mom was diagnosed with a very serious illness when I was in middle school, elementary, middle school, middle school. Um, again, we were talking about earlier, formative socio-emotional developmental time, and that really impacted me. And so I first started experiencing symptoms of depression when I was in eighth grade. But other contributing factors might be domestic abuse, intense academic climate, hostile work environment. The pandemic is definitely one. Um, possibly a stressful financial situation, poor, poor kind of environmental setting. If you live in a place where there's high pollution or there's, you know, poor mobility and you have a disability or something like that, right? Those can be factors or triggers for somebody developing a mental illness. And these factors can change throughout everybody's life for many different reasons. They, um, can ebb and they can kind of get better, they can get worse. But what we always say is that it's important to be aware of all of these different kind of like camps of, of factors, because if you're able to identify perhaps the source of your symptoms, you have a better chance of treating it effectively. So for example, if you know that you experienced some sort of abuse in your family when you were younger, right? And you're starting to work with a therapist, right? That's a really helpful factor to name in terms of approaching your treatment accordingly. Um, of course, the pandemic is one we all experienced. And if you're able to unpack that and say, why am I feeling anxious today? You know, is it that the world is on fire or is it that there's something actually happening with my job? Oh, it's actually something happening with my job. I feel okay in terms of, um, you know, not getting sick, for example, it's helpful to break those things down. But the short answer is that there's 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 a variety of factors. Yeah, and for me, uh, it was, you know, predeposition. Um, my father um, suffers from schizoaffective uh, bipolar type as well. Um, and so, you know, it was there. And I was diagnosed uh, in the army, which is a very high pressured, stressful situation. Plus, you know, I did uh, a tour in Kosovo and, you know, I was exposed to genocide. You know, I was exposed to the horrors of war. Um, and so when I got back, you know, it was only a matter of time before um, I had my first psychotic break. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely many ways that somebody could get a mental illness. Um, and sometimes not always pre-genetic you know, disposition, sometimes, you know, abuse uh, at an early age um, can instill the symptoms that will affect you later on in life that are diagnosed into a mental illness. Um, so, um, but that's, you know, that's definitely good to know. So, um, tell us, since uh, I think I'm starting to run out of the questions, so, Tell us how can people find you, find out more about NAMI? Two things I would do. One, you can go to the national organization, which is just NAMI.org. They have great information about kind of all these, the, pro, the national programs that are off, that most of whom are offered at local affiliates. They have great information about what mental health conditions are, how they manifest. Um, fact pages, information on mental health in different cultural communities or marginalized communities. 
So that's a good place to start. You can also just go to your local website, local NAMI affiliate. And if you're unsure what that affiliate might be, typically by county. So you can just type in NAMI in your county. You can also find your local affiliate through the national organization. And essentially how the NAMI model works is national develops programs and then they filter down to local affiliates who deliver those programs on a community level. Not all NAMIs offer the same program, so that's something to be aware of, but many offer similar programs. And the organization that I work for, San Francisco, we decided to offer more programs than typical a typical NAMI might just because we felt that there was a really strong community need. And we did that about five or six years ago. So you won't find some of the programs we offer on the national website, just something to be aware of. Um, so so where can they go? Where can people go to find the your chapter? Yeah, namisf.org is our website. Okay. And we don't have a physical office. Everything, everything is online, but would always, you know, everybody who works, myself included, who works there is really an open book. We would love to hear from you. If you're just curious about our programs or resources, feel free to shoot us an email. If you want to get involved as a volunteer, shoot us an email, complete the volunteer application, and all of our programs have a bunch of information about them on the site. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for coming on the show. Dan, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask, Andrew? Um, just just one question. We've been talking about a lot of very heavy, so to say, sort of things. Um, so I just wanted to ask one kind of last fun question. Uh, outside of special episodes like this, we are a football podcast, a 49ers podcast. No, no shame if you're not a, a, a fan or follow the team as closely as we do. But if you do follow the team, are you excited about the season? Uh, do you think we're going to do really well? Uh, what are you looking forward to, if you are a fan? Yeah, I was telling, I was telling James last week, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not a big football fan. I am from the Bay Area, live in San Francisco, and I was a big Niners fan back when, you know, they had the great season with Alex Smith, Kaepernick, the Super Bowl, et cetera. And then I just, I just kind of fell off. So, and I don't really follow the sport that much. I'm more of a, uh, more of a soccer baseball guy. Okay. The, the Giants, I'll, I, I keep a tab on the Giants too. I, I can't say I'm as big a Giants fan as I am a Niners fan, but, um, but no, I like to, I like to know how they're doing. Um, well, they, the Giants just beat the Phillies and in, in like a, they swept the Phillies in the three game series. So I can tell you how the Giants are doing. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, you tell. How do you feel about the season, Andrew, for the Giants? You know, to be honest, I've read a little bit about them this year. I'm 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 really much more of a soccer guy, but I, I I keep up to some extent with the Giants. I think it will be okay. I think they're off to a rocky start. I think they had some injuries to some of their bigger names. I think Farhan, who's the you know VP of baseball operations has done an admirable job sourcing free agents who have provided overall very positive return. I think one of the weak points of the organization is their farm system and lack of major league value talent. Um, and, and part of why that's an issue is then you have to focus on the free agent market, which in general is more expensive, competitive, um, isn't totally sustainable. But I think they have a decent team. The NL West is loaded. 
Dodgers, obviously, the Diamondbacks are struggling so far, but they'll probably turn it around. Even the Diamondbacks are above 500 and the Rockies, maybe less competitive, but it's just a really competitive division. So I think the goal for the Giants could be above 500. They finished at 500 last year. I think they're turning it around, swept the Phillies. It feels like a hundred and are generally competitive. That would be a decent season. I was going to say, doesn't it feel like a lifetime ago now that the Giants and the Dodgers were both like over a hundred wins and it came and we played each other in the second round. And it it, it feels like literally that was a lifetime ago. And that was two years ago. (laughs) 2021. I followed that season closer than I followed any baseball season. I watched almost every single game. (laughs) I went to game five, the division series game five at the Giants stadium. And it was heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. I took the bus home. I couldn't say one word. (laughs) Oh man. But also, Sport, uh, you know, sport as entertainment, sport as contest, sport as community. You know, I was with a couple of friends, and I wouldn't, I didn't want to be anywhere else in that moment. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, even I, in a loss, that would have been amazing to have been at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can definitely feel your pain, but I think I felt it a lot more <laughs> when the Phillies got no hit in the World Series by the Houston Astros. Like that was just devastating. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i definitely feel you i like i know i follow a whole season and then they come up short and it's definitely tough and um you know but i mean hey you never know every single year it's a new year and you just never know and you know you guys you know you guys have plenty of time to turn it around this year so i think baseball is a very idiosyncratic sport and that's part of why I think it appeals to me at least is there's all these weird rules and situations and um, it's just kind of a strange sport, frankly. And I think part of the reason that that 2021 giant season was so spectacular is it was a combination of a bunch of guys, veteran guys, giants, like old giants having career years, Crawford, Bell, Posey, so many role players, also like a very new model. They, they're they very analytics oriented. Mm-hmm. And all of those idiosyncrasies really seem to work in their favor. Some crazy stat that I think down the stretch, the Dodgers won, let's say, like 21 of 25 games or something. And they only gained a game on the Giants. And the Giants beat them in the NL West by a game. And I feel like something like that can only happen in baseball, which is, which is why it's just like, um dynamic and intriguing so i remember an interesting point about those giants because gabe kapler is still the manager and he was from the phillies and he was analytically minded but one of the stats i believe from that giant seasons was they had 30 pinch hit home runs something crazy like that like they would pinch hit and they almost always got a home run in their in their pinch hit appearances which is crazy because I mean, to think that you got 30 home runs on your team by putting some guy in at bat, you know, in the middle of a game, you know, right off cold off the bench and he hits a home run. I thought that was an amazing stat from that Giants team. I remember watching, I can just even think of a few games off the top of my head right now where they're down to the A's. It's the eighth inning. They, you know, have been trailing all game. Just look lethargic. And somebody hits, yeah, 
uh, pinch hit home run, two run homer, turns the game around. They end up taking, you know, two or three from the A's, big series. This is back when the A's were, were good and they had Olsen and almost made, they, they blew it, but they almost made the playoffs. Um, and just time after time after time, they would do it. It was just really, really fun to be a fan, playing really good baseball. And then the next season is almost, last season was like the come down where they have the same model. The personnel is worse, right? Posey retires, um, Crawford's not playing as well, et cetera. Some of the role players leave. And the outcome is very different, right? They're not yeah. hitting 30 pinch in home runs. They're hitting a few. The bullpen is less effective, et cetera. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's going to be hard <laughs> to keep up with the Dodgers is basically what we're saying. <laughs> hard. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was the only question I had. Um, but yeah, I, just, I, of course, we couldn't go a whole 90 minutes without talking baseball or without talking sports. <laughs> yeah, that would have been tough. So, <laughs> or hour and change, I should say. But, um, but yeah, James. Well, guys, if you want to reach out to us, if you want to reach out to Nami, we will, we will have that information in our show description. Uh, you can reach out to us at Twitter, which is at Niner Nuts. Uh, you can also get that on Facebook. Um, and so, anything you guys want to write to us about, uh, 49ernuts at gmail.com. That's 49ernuts at gmail.com. We are still selling merchandise uh, until the sale of the Commanders is final. All proceeds will go to human trafficking recovery centers in the D.C. area once the sale is final. Dan, do you have anything left you want to say? Uh, yeah, and I'll keep it very brief. Uh, we can talk more about it on a actual full sports episode down the line. But um, uh, the NFL really did lose um, a living legend um, from the day we're taping this, I think literally two days ago, uh, Brown's running back actor, activist, uh, Jim Brown passed away. Uh, and yeah, I just, uh, saved it for here. We can talk more about it in de in depth in a future episode, but I, I, I'd be embarrassed if we didn't at least acknowledge that Jim Brown passed away and just, uh, how big a loss it is for the NFL world. But, uh, outside of that, all right, guys. Well, outro music, River Road, Justin Mute. Catch you next time. River Road, you got me running way back home. River Road, you got me running all night long. You got me singing some canal boat song. River Road, River Road, you got me running all night long.